Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Ricardo Pagan, who's the CEO of Claridge Properties. This conversation was recorded live in front of an audience of ULI young leaders in Los Angeles, and I'll give you the headline. This was one of the most inspirational conversations on Leading Voices, and I'm thinking after you listen to it, you might want to share it with friends, even those outside of real estate. I found the conversation to be that impactful. In the interview, Ricardo tells literally an astonishing story. This is not hyperbole. Call it bupkis to riches and at a fast pace. Ricardo moved to the United States from the Dominican Republic at age nine in 1991. He moved through several tough neighborhoods in Brooklyn during childhood, gained inspiration about a potential career from a relative during a trip back to the Dominican Republic, started buying houses in his late teens after seeing one of those billboards to attend a get-rich-quick-through-real-estate flipping seminar, started developing in his early 20s, and finally found his way into institutional-sized deals of increasing scale while still in his 20s. First, he worked his way into a four-acre waterfront development site in Brooklyn, then found several deals before the rest of the crowd and beaten up Detroit, including the iconic Book Cadillac Hotel that he redeveloped into a Weston, both, I think, prior to age 30. He never completed college, and through some of this was still working part-time as a security guard while he was forging this pathway. Then he moved to L.A. about four years ago, and over that time put together the tallest residential tower project in downtown L.A., the $1.2 billion Angels Landing Project. You cannot make this stuff up and you'll hear it on the podcast. One of the things that I kept thinking about as he told his story is the narrative that we all know too well inside our heads of believing that business is just too competitive to be able to build meaningful market share in whatever part of the business world you're in or in one's personal life. Ricardo's story is one of a young man still now under 40 who's walked through walls and jumped over mountains to make his mark. I'm again aware of the hyperbole, but this is the story that you're about to hear. Before the interview, a shout out to thank the people at ULI in Los Angeles who set this all up, in particular Chandler Hogue from Gemdale USA, who was the lead organizer, Alex Hack, Elvina Beck, and John Hilliard from Arup, which hosted the event. It was really fun doing this in front of a live audience, since I know that both Ricardo and I took energy from focusing on the reactions and interests of the group. Please do enjoy the episode and do pass this one along, not only this time to your real estate colleagues, but also to friends and family who will also find Ricardo's story to be compelling. If you're not already, please subscribe to Leading Voices and feel free to communicate back to me through my LinkedIn or directly via email at my day job at matt.terrasearchpartners.com. Enjoy the conversation with Ricardo. So I am Matt Sleppin, and so I am the host of the podcast, Leading Voices in Real Estate. We have 60-some-odd episodes out there. They're all on iTunes and every other podcast app that exists. We just got rated as the number one commercial real estate podcast. I've been waiting for someone to rate us because there's only a couple of us anyhow, but I think we got number one. And it was founded by ULI. So ULI started the podcast. I am also the founder and managing partner of Terra Search Partners. So in my day job, I am a headhunter only in the real estate space. So that's what I do. And the perspective that I try to bring to this is education, but education from the standpoint who likes to interview people for a living. What we really get to do is talk to Ricardo Pagan about his world. 
And this is, I call this the unpacking of Ricardo Pagan. That's what we're going to do today. <laughs> and we have not met before. We've spoken on the phone. So I know a little bit about this guy, but not much. But I am amazed that you've gotten to the place that you've gotten to, that you're only a third of the way through a career. Agreed. And somehow you overcame a lot of odds to get to this place. Agreed. So I want to congratulate you on that. But that's what we're going to get to talk about tonight. And, but the first question for you, I guess just for orientation for those of us who don't know you or those in the group who don't know you, mm-hmm. is kind of just give an elevator story of your business and what you do and what you own and what you're developing. Sure. Name of my firm is Claridge Properties. Claridge Properties originally was known as the Winston Group from 2000 to 2008, 2009, and I renamed it Claridge. I thought it was a name that more fitted into the brand that I wanted to build over time. My business is basically multifamily. I'm a multifamily developer. I buy existing and also develop new multifamily in gateway, major gateway cities. I I tend to not work in secondary tertiary markets anymore. So mainly cities like New York, here, San Francisco, is where we tend to do our business for the simple fact that we like the barriers to entry and the protection that cities like this give us when we bring up projects. So we do everything from site selection all the way through development. Uh, We do not self-perform any of our construction projects. We get that to third parties, but we watch every step of the way. And right now we have a little over 4 million square feet of projects that we're doing. The most well-known, of course, is Angels Landing, which is right behind us, 2.2 million square feet that we're developing there for the city of Los Angeles in uh, the state of California, successor agency to the CRA. We also were involved in a number of other projects here, as well as a million and a half square feet that we just finished in the Williamsburg waterfront in New York City itself, which actually sold very quickly after we finished it. So our business is basically multifamily. We do not do senior. We do not do much affordable now. This is part of the project that we're doing. We're more market rate developers, but we started in the affordable space when we started developing in the affordable space, and then we morphed into the higher-end, bigger, billion-dollar projects that you guys see today. In a nutshell, that's what we do. And do you hold these properties? Are you a merchant builder mostly? Do you do both? How does that work? I started as a merchant builder when I was, call it 2004 to 2008, 2009. I was holding everything I did because the basis in the projects at the time was so low that it allowed me to stick with these properties and not have to either refinance them or sell them. Now, with the kind of land basis you're getting into and the construction costs, it's a little bit more difficult to be able to keep these things. So we are mostly selling a lot of the stuff that we're developing. And partially because you have partners who need you to well, sell as much as you need to sell. True. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you have situations where, you know, people want to cash in their promotes, which is true. But sometimes some of the partners want to be involved and want to stay. It's just the cost basis. Mm-hmm. When you do a re-up, it's just too high. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense to really do that. So, yeah. <laughs> and who is we? What's Claridge look like? And is Claridge on the West Coast or the East Coast or both coasts? And how do you handle that? Good question. Claridge is... I will always call it an East Coast company because I, that's where I started, right? My roots are there. Most of my properties are there. But I've made a transition in the last couple of years because I saw that the East Coast markets primarily were just overgrowing themselves beyond what the market can support. You know, the, the, the competition was too high. The cost was too high. And the amount of prices that were coming out was too much. And I didn't feel that the opportunity for me to grow was in the East Coast. So I came out here thinking that that would be the case. And everyone on the West Coast would say exactly what you just said about the West Coast. Backwards, (laughs) yeah. It's too hard to do business here. I mean, it is hard now. It is hard now. And honestly, it was hard when I got here. I'm not going to act like it was really easy. But when you come from a city like New York, 
with the politics that are there, with the money that's there, the old money. I'm not talking money because everybody right. in the city has money, but old money that's been tied into that system in New York for a long time and has the pol- political system in a wrap for a long time. They call it the family dynasties, the real estate dynasties. It's impossible to surpass that and just go from being a nobody like I was into trying to be kind of a somebody. You cannot mm-hmm. even get to that. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah. So they, easier here to be kind of a somebody to get started. 10,000 10, times. And as I always tell people, sometimes your opportunity is not where you are. You know, right now, like you said, somebody could say it's hard here, right, for somebody to start. Maybe it's easier for them in Phoenix. Or it's easier in Dallas. that Everybody's going and doing business in Dallas and, and San Antonio. But eventually, you could grow somewhere else and then eventually come back where you came from, where, where you may be even better at than where you went. But my opportunity, for me at least, was here. Got it. Definitely. Was here. And then also the amount of new development and redevelopment, it's almost like this is a new city because you're doing mostly downtown LA. That is exactly correct. Think? When I came here the first time, something that I realized very, very fast, and I came, just so you know, I came to downtown by mistake. I came here to meet a lender. I was buying a loan on a property. And the lender, which is East West Bank, they were at the time located in Pasadena, went to meet them. And I was staying in a hotel near LAX. And I was bored. I was really bored. Could not go to sleep. And I asked somebody, what could I do in the city? And this person told me to come to a bar that used to be here on Hill and 9th Street. And I came. And when I came, the bar shut down at 1.30. And I remember that. I was 31 at the time, so I used to be able to go out too much later, and I realized that, yeah, not anymore. So <laughs> we go out there, and we realize that we're getting thrown out at one thirty. and I look around, and I see that everything around me was closed. It was right. basically vacant. And you need to understand, I came to L.A. from Detroit. I went from New York to Detroit, Detroit here. Detroit is empty, completely empty. There's not a sign that's working, a light post. There's no cops no going around. There's nothing going around. So I said to myself, unless this is Detroit, or a replica of it, there's something going on here. So right away, my light bulb went off, Uh and I said, let's check this out. And what I found was that this is one of the largest cities in the country, probably the second largest population and even economic uh, drivers-wise, right? But it was lacking a center of gravity there downtown. Once I realized that, I knew that I had an opportunity. So, And about what year was that? This was 2011. This was exactly July 2011. And we're going to come back to that. What's interesting, when I visit LA, which I don't know that well, but I'm here often, the downtown LA market has been changing drastically Fast. over 15 years, 15, Fast. 20 years, maybe yeah. 20 years ago wasn't. But also, you can go one more block That's right. and it's undone. And you, you get six right more blocks, it's more undone, so the opportunity right to keep pushing is there. You can still do that right now. Because I'll tell you a story about that when we get to Angels Landing later as to how, how those gentlemen made the deal with us. And it was that exact analogy. On one block, they said, I love it. And in the next block, they said, I want to run out of here and go back to New York. Right. <laughs> because it was pretty scary when you get to Main Street. So, yeah, downtown LA, <laughs> downtown LA is still growing. But if you understand the mechanics of what's going on here, you could see what the growth prospect is and kind of get around it. So let's go way back and change the subject and talk about you. So you grew up in New York. Yes. So talk about growing up, talk about school, not school, sure. and then how you got to this place. Sure. So I'm originally from the Dominican Republic. I uh, was born there, obviously. We came into the U.S. in May of 1991, my mother, father, sister, and I. And we moved directly into what's known as Red Hook, Brooklyn. Very, very tough area. It's like what Watts is today in South L.A. It's kind of like you? that. I was nine at the time, eight or nine at okay. the time. I came here two weeks after my birthday. My birthday is May 5th. Mm-hmm. And we came. Uh, I remember it was an American Airlines plane. Uh, it was very hot that day. And we went to Red Hook. And I remember that when I got to New York, all the pumps in the street were open. 
at the time you were allowed to do, you can't do that anymore. They had all the water pumps open in the street. And my father used to let us be kids and say, hey, go play in the middle of the street and go wet yourself for three hours and let us figure out our grown business. That's what we did the first day that I came in. I probably played that water to eight, nine o'clock at night. It was really hot. Yeah. It was a summer day that we got here. And so we got here in 1991, lived in Red Hook maybe the first year of our lives. We moved to Bushwick uh, about a year into New York. Bushwick was still also a very bad area at the mm -hmm. time. And my father, all his family in this country was in Providence, Rhode Island. He used to live in Providence, Rhode Island, which is right below Boston. Yeah. So a year after we came in, we moved to Providence. We lived in Providence until 92 or so, or maybe 93. And my father couldn't get work up there. We were Providence, Rhode Island. It's a very small town. <laughs> not a lot of people there. Not a lot of economic opportunities at all. So he decided to come back. And when we came back, we moved to Bushwick briefly for a couple of months. Uh -huh. And then we went straight from there to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He okay. got himself a two-bedroom apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And that's how I landed in Williamsburg, which is the reason that we're even talking here today. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't think it would have happened. And why is Williamsburg why we're talking? And then did that where you settled down? So We settled. I, I mean, I lived in Williamsburg from... Call it 93 until I moved to Los Angeles in 2011. And what was the picture of Williamsburg at that point in time <laughs> versus the picture of Williamsburg? I'll tell you what Williamsburg was like in 1993. We've um, seen Spike Lee movies, I think, oh, take place I, in Oh, I could tell right? you without the movies, I could tell you what it was. Yeah. Every corner was controlled by a different mafia family. The drug dealers were different in every location. Every garbage bin was a different color because uh, the mafia families, the way they controlled New York City was they controlled the garbage disposal the delis, which is where we have 7-Eleven here, and they controlled also the businesses. And the way they controlled it was by colors. They'll put the bins, the garbage bins, in a green somewhere, then a blue somewhere, and a red somewhere. That means that a different family controlled that area. That's how it worked. And the drug dealers, the same thing. When they sold bios of the stuff they were selling, one was green, one was blue, one was whatever it was. That's how they played the game to control their sector. So when I moved to Williamsburg, a lot of shootings, a lot of violence, unfortunately. And, you know, we had no choice. I didn't know any better, so I didn't know what was bad or good. It was bad all the way around. And we did our best. A cousin of ours, a cousin, by the way, of my mother, had a small business, a laundromat, on South 2nd and Bedford Avenue, 326 Bedford Avenue. And <laughs> she was pregnant at the time with her daughter, and she could not handle the business. And went to my mother and said, hey, you already moved to the area. Why don't you come and help me manage it? So my mother became the manager. Then when she had the baby, she didn't want to go back to the business. She said, you know what? Why don't we sell it to you? And effectively, 1994, my father bought the laundromat from my cousin. They gave him a little bit of financing. You know, they held some paper. Mm -hmm. He had built a house in the American Republic, so he gave that as his deposit. And that became how we got into the area originally. So there you are, family in the laundromat. Yeah. And you're growing up through junior high school, high school. Elementary, all the way through. Okay, yeah. all the way through. And then the neighborhood remained, at that point, still was kind of that same, same. All the way to 1999. That's okay, until yeah. 99. And then what happened with you? So what did you do? And <laughs> Unfortunately, well, when you're hanging out in areas that are of poor means, you get mixed with the crowd. I mean, there's nothing you can do. So at the time, unfortunately, when I was in junior high school, unless you were part of a crew or a group, you couldn't go to school because somebody would either rob you or something else on your way to school. So we had a little group of us. We, there was maybe, honestly, maybe six or 10 Dominican families in that neighborhood. Everything else was Puerto Rican and everything else. And we tried to stick together, right? Like uh -huh. Italians stick together, everybody stick together. We stuck together. And we used to basically go to school together, right? all the way from elementary, junior high school to high school was the same. And that kept us safe while my father 
ran the business. The uh, laundromat. Yeah, he ran the laundromat with my and, mom. And you make a distinction, and we're going way far afield of what real estate's going to be, but this is too interesting. But Dominican families and Puerto Rican families, they're different. Extremely different, and in the 80s and 90s, they did not get along. It was just a culture thing where, remember, Puerto Ricans entered New York City in the 1950s. Right. We didn't enter until the 1980s. So every time a new group comes in, they're looked at as the guys that have to prove themselves. So it took a little while for people to warm up to us. I mean, now we have a couple of million people up there, and we basically run all of Washington Heights. Another reason why it was successful. We run all of Washington Heights. What yeah. does that mean? So what that means this is... It sounds like another family with like, so, like the so, green trash cans. Yeah, I mean, what that means is that Dominicans basically, for some reason on earth said, you know what, we're going to land on 155th Street and we're going to live on 180th Street and 190th Street and nobody else is going to buy or live here. And they took everything, water to water, from 155th all the way to 215, uh-huh. which is known as Washington Heights Uptown. That's what it's known as. And they basically bought every building, lived in every building, kind of the same way that, that Hasidic Jewish families do. They take an area and control it. They live in it, they own it, and no one else can live in it. So in the 80s, that's how they were able to get a, call it a stake in what New York was. Puerto Rican families were in Harlem mainly. You know, Spanish Harlem, as it's known, mm-hmm. and areas like mine in Queens. That's where they were. Uptown, Uptown was not considered an area that was good because it's really close to the Bronx. Okay. And the Bronx was too dangerous at the time. So Okay, so for your family, this stabilizes in the, what becomes the Dominican neighborhood. And you get through high school and you're part of a, a group? I want to say the word gang, group, whatever yeah, it you, is. you can almost call it that. I mean, it's, it's a okay. brotherhood. you got to be a with your friends. It was safe. a brotherhood and, and we were very close. It's the only way that, that we survived. And... I remember when I went to apply for college the first time. I, I was not the greatest student in junior high school. I was just wasting too much uh-huh. time. And my father came here. You know, that they did a lot of things in order to get here. And they saw their son kind of wasting his time. Right. So in 1998 or 1999, he just got fed up and said, you know what? I'm going to ship you where we came from. So he took me, told me I was going on vacation. I had not been in the country since I came to the U.S. Wow. at that time. So 10 years have passed. I know nothing about the country. I'm a 16, 17-year-old. And he says, you know what? Let's ship you over there so you can go see your grandma. You haven't seen her in 10 years. And what they actually did was they shipped me over there and took the passport with them. Mm-hmm. And I got stuck in the Dominican Republic for a good three, four months. And I had to kind of see what that world was like, how things operate. I come from a very small town. The name of the town is San Pedro. Okay. And it was, I mean, I, I thought it was bad where I was. It, it was really serious there. And that kind of opened my eyes as to what the world really was outside of New York where you have everything and you could get on a train, you could get a metro car from school for free right. and all these things that doesn't exist there. There's hey, no, hey, there's no none I, of that. We have to get to real estate the rest sure. of your, your life. And I apologize to people I'm asking these questions, but I am like so interesting. So the neighborhood in Brooklyn is pretty rough. Yeah. But you get to the Dominican Republic, I'm sorry, I'd like pick, this is gross. I'm it's picturing sugarcane stuff, right? Oh, it is sugarcane. Fields. No, it was sugarcane. It's all cool. No, it was sugarcane. More poverty there. And is it more dangerous there? More dangerous because the poverty level is higher. More need. You know, uh-huh. poverty brings need and need makes people do things that they shouldn't do. My luck, and I think that's what started and sparked what we're about to get into. Okay, I met a cousin of mine who was over there and over here. He had a few, call it bodegas, and bodegas are delis, like 7-Elevens. And he used to take his little bit of money he used to make here and invest it over there. At the time, the dollar was worth a lot over there. Still worth a lot, but the inflation to depreciation was, was pretty good. So he would get 20, 24 pesos to a dollar. So he will buy strip malls, buy hotels, buy land, and build these things over there in our town. And when I met him, I think, I guess my father asked him for me to hang out with him. And I hung out with him for a good month, waking up at 5 in the morning, getting to his house at 9 p.m., Every day, like he will come and literally throw water on me to wake me up and have me run into his truck and for us to go and see what he's doing. And I just saw this and I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we'll, we'll build a little project here. We'll build a house there. 
And I don't know, I, I didn't know what it meant, but I said, that sounds interesting. Nothing happened at all, but I came back to the U.S. And when I came back to the U.S., it just happened to be that maybe, maybe a month after I came back, we were just about to start school again. I'm the kind of guy, I'm a night owl. I don't wake up early, so I wake up 8 o'clock, even to this very day. But I go to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning, every other day without a problem. And just like that, I was looking at a program one time, and I saw an infomercial. This white guy out of Florida in colorful shorts, colorful shirt, saying that you can buy houses with no money and that he could show you how to do it. He was going to be at JFK Airport. And I said, oh, my God, that's what my cousin was doing. Maybe this guy knows what he's doing. I'm going to go see him. And that's where the story we're about to get into now came from. I went to that hotel. I sat there, and I listened to him, and I ate it up like it was the best thing that anybody ever told me. I didn't even have the money. I bought the, the book, package. The book. It was five videotapes. Two CDs, which were very new at the time, and five books, $300. And honestly, I spent maybe a um, good two months doing not. I stopped hanging out and everything. I was just reading that every night to see if it was even true. And he will say, oh, you could get this in the New York Times or find these leads on, on whatever newspaper. And I found out that some of the things that he said were actually true. When he said, hey, you'll find for sale by owner houses in the New York Times section here, you will find it exactly as he says. So I said, maybe he's onto something. And that's what kind of gave me the spark to say, you know what? There might be something there. I'm going to try. And let me ask a question, because there are two themes I just heard. One was that when you were with your uncle, yeah. it may have been the first time that aspiration and hard work came into your mind as something you could and should do, and it could be you. If there's anything he showed me, and he's still in business to this very day, he told me very clear. He said, Ricardo, you're not going to get anything done if you get up at 9 a.m. He used to tell me, by the time you get up at 9 a.m., somebody has five hours on you. That's how he thinks. I mean, right. I, I no longer believe in that because now I'm ahead enough to, to not have to necessarily do that. But when I was 17 and I got the idea and I was reading th those videos, I understood for whatever reason on earth that the time was right here, right now. And I had to do it like yesterday and I had to uh -huh. get something done like now, even though there was no really time pressure. That was okay. what I had. In so this is before college. Do you finish oh, high school? Oh, yeah. It was before college. So it, you uh, finish high school. You take the 300 buck class yes. at JFK. Yes. And now it's time to try doing real estate. And we're going to tie that to Correct. doing billion-dollar deals. So oh, yeah. this is oh, going to yeah. be a trick. Yeah. But, okay, yeah. let's go. So I see the course. I watch what's going on. And I remember something that he kept saying that the gentleman, I, look, unfortunately, when I moved to L.A., I made a mistake and I left a lot of my stuff in New York. And I lost that program. Oh. I, I kept it as a memento. And I lost it. And to this day, I wish I kept it because it would have been a good memory. That guy, the only thing that I picked up from him that, 90% of everything he said in that program was not true. It's just you cannot buy houses with no money and everything. I mean, there's, there's ways to do it, but it doesn't work. But his drive in making you understand that you could do it even if you have nothing is something that I just thought that it was real. And I said, you know what? If he's saying it's true, then I'm going to go. And that led me to say to myself that he had a planogram in the back of one of the books where he made you put goals and said, what does your first year look like? Are you going to buy a house? Are you going to buy a duplex? What are you going to do? What is your goal? And then you will call their assistants, a 24-hour hotline, and they will tell you kind of how to plan that out. And I said, okay, by the time I'm 18, I want to have a three-family for a lot of reasons. You know, three-family is a triplex here. And I said, you know what? Let's try doing that. And I could tell you that at the age of 18, I bought the first one, six-family building, actually. It was a three-family legal for $180,000 in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I put exactly $1,080 down. That was my first one. Wow. And who was your lender? Just the lender was Flagstar Bank. They gave me $215,000, and they paid my seller concession, which is the closing cost, uh -huh. paid my, for my LLC, my attorney, and I gave a $1,000 check at closing. It was basically no money down. And the way it worked, there wasn't no money down. It was really 
you will find a piece of property that was undervalued. Let's say if this glass is worth a dollar and you buy it for 20 cents. Mm -hmm. And then you go and say that you and me, you know that it's worth 20 cents. You're the seller and the buyer. But we'll tell the bank and say, look, the cup is worth 50 cents. Mm -hmm. So he'll come and lend me on that 50 cents. Right. 60%, 70%. And that is what, quote unquote, the, the no money down thing was in the 90s and early 2000s. You can do that because the property values were so decreased. I didn't know the mechanics of that. But that's what happened in my first deal. And I remember being at the, at the closing. My mother was a co-signer for me. I didn't have credit at the time. And she didn't know how I even bought it. And I said, I don't even know myself. Right. I honestly could tell you, I did not know. We walked out of that thing. They gave us keys. We got in a very old Oldsmobile that my father owned. And we went to 1082 Pacific Street in Bedford-Stuyvesant to take over my house. 1082, 1082 Pacific Street in Bedford-Stuyvesant behind yeah. the armory. And I looked at I was happy as can be. And I said, wow, this is the first one. But what that told me, guys, what that told me was if I can buy this one, I can buy another one. So talk about that. How did that keep going? And hopefully that keeps going before the music stops because otherwise that bank's going to be not nice. That is exactly correct. I could tell you that when I bought 1082 Pacific Street, look, the area was full of crime, full of drugs. There was nothing nice there. My tenants were what they call DAS tenants. DAS tenants are people that have venereal disease that are given housing by the Housing Authority in New York. So those are the tenants that I had. They gave me guaranteed rents, but the tenancies were very, very, very rough. The specific uh, I, problem with the tenants was venereal disease? See, so AIDS and, and, and okay, things like that, unfortunately. Okay. Okay, and going. the tenants were rough, rough on me, rough on my father. You know, a lot of times we got attacked with knives and all sorts of things because they knew they could get away with it. Bedford Stuyvesant at the time was a war zone at the time. Not now. Now it's, it's very nice. But all that told me when I bought it, and I remember when I got there that day, I said, if I did this one, I could do it again. The difference is Bedford Stuyvesant from my father's laundromat was about 40 minute drive. So I said, the next one, I have to try to get it closer to him because I could go to school. Remember, right. I'm still in school. So I said, I could go to school. And then when I come back out of school, I could go and check it. My father was checking in the morning, I could check in the afternoon. And that's when I said, wait a minute, but we're in the South Side. To me, Williamsburg was the South Side, not Williamsburg as they call it today. So I said, why am I buying in Bedford Stuyvesant? I could buy in the South Side. The houses in the South Side were the same. Near high grand, school. 200 grand. Okay. And I said, why am I buying this thing out here when I could just buy here and just walk to it? And I went to the South Side and said, well, my father has all these clients. You know, my father receives clothes that people want to clean and everything else. I said, Dad, if you hear anybody's in trouble, let me know and let's see if we can buy it. And that's how we found the second one. Okay. How many did you buy? In Williamsburg, we bought 13 doing that. Okay. Then, over and over and over. Then what's the next part of the story? So the next part of the story and how I become a developer is very funny. I actually explained this to one of the people in, in the room here, actually. My father was very good friends with a gentleman that had a electronics business in New York in the 90s and 80s, 90s, and, and even the 2000s. The cool thing to do for young kids, that's not cool anymore now, but at the time it was, was to buy whatever car you can get, you know, whatever crappy car you can get, and put these very expensive music systems in there. They will put the, the bass and the thing and the rims and everything else, and that's how you show the girls that you were, you know, hot or whatever the case was at the time. Was that also low riders? No, that no, was no, no, that's no, no, separate. No, not okay. at all. So... The gentleman had a small business in this 50 by 100 lot, little wooden shack where he used to do people's systems. And I used to go from my father's laundromat and work for him. And then in the weekends, I used to go hang out with this gentleman. And I was talking with a broker one time, and he told me, he said, you know, a lot of the buildings that you have, you could repurpose. And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you could take your one barrels, make them two barrels, make them lofts, and make them this, make them that, to pick up your rents. At the time... People were realizing that people were coming from Union Square and other neighborhoods in New York, taking the L train, getting out on North 7th Street to get to Williamsburg. So they knew if they're going to the north side, eventually they're going to come where? To the south side. Uh -huh. I was the first stop because I was in south first. 
Mm-hmm. South Forest is the first block when you get to the South Side. So I said, okay, let me learn what that is. And I did my first building, 167 Grand Street. We took it and turned it from six apartments to four loft apartments, two bedrooms. We went from getting $700 rents to getting about $1,600, $1,700 at the time, which to us was an amazing amount of money. We paid $200,000 right. for the building, so we were making a lot of money. And we did the same thing to a building down the street that we own, 147. When I learned that, I said, wait, if I could do that, maybe I could make them bigger. I met an architect, and this architect, a uh, Hasidic Jewish guy, I remember, very smart guy, came and said, I'll show you how zoning works. And he sat me down in his office and said, look, Ricardo, this is what a multiple is. This is what zoning lot is. And he gave me all these things, and I said, so you're telling me if I have a piece of land, I could build this. And right away, I said, wait, uh-huh. this man has this. So the, the man that owns the electronics store had the site. So I went to him, and I said, his name is Rafael. I said, Rafael, would you consider building apartments on the site? And he said, oh, I've, I've thought about it, but I've never done it. And, and I said, well, that may be a good idea. And he said, oh, so, so who are you going to bring that's going to do it? And I said, that'll be me. And he said, yeah, but you've never done that. You, you, you can't really do it. I said, well, me and my dad, you know, I wanted my dad to give me the gray hairs. I always use that as the gray hairs. And for some reason on earth that to this very human day, I cannot understand. He said, you know what? Yes, fine. Let's put together a JV. You'll go and, and we'll split it 50-50. You'll go and, and, and do the plans. And we'll go and I'll wait here until you get the approval. Then we'll see how we build this building. So what I did instead was he had 50 feet by 100. I bought another 25 feet by 100 next to him. We made it 75 by 100. I went and got it approved. I got myself 22 units in a store, about 8,000 square feet in a store downstairs. And lo and behold, I went from being an owner to being a developer. This is 2002. In 2002, how old are you? And in what grade are you now? I should have been in college already. I was already in college, and I should have been 22, 23. 22, 23, and you're building your first building in I wasn't building it yet. I was was planning and entitling the first one, and I didn't build it to the next year. And it's just funny how that came to be. I didn't know anything. I Think about it. I didn't know what financing was. I didn't know what return on cost was. I didn't know what a performer was. I didn't know anything. Price per unit. I didn't even know what I was going to price the units. I just just knew that I I was approving some building that was going to have 22 units. Then I went to some other guy that gave me some pricing and told me the building was going to cost me $12 million. I had never seen anything in my life with six zeros in, in, in front of it. And I said, this is something that's going to get interesting fast. I don't have that kind of money. I didn't know what leverage was. I didn't know what equity was, what debt was. But again, the drive that I got, you got to go back four years. The drive that I got when I went to the Dominican Republic right. and when I bought those buildings told me, we will figure it out. And how did you figure that one? I'll tell you exactly how. Okay, cool. Right across the street, a gentleman built another building, 40, 50 units. And I saw him. I said, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. A city Jewish guy. A city Jews basically built Williamsburg. They control it. And I went to him. I saw him one time in front of the site and I said, look, my name is so-and-so. I told him, I own the site across the street. Can you help us figure this out? We have these plans, X, Y, and Z. And he said, yeah, I know your architect. He's a very good friend. Why don't we have a meeting at your architect's office? So we had a meeting at the architect's office. The architect is Henry. And we sat down with Henry in the building. He said, you know what, Henry? I like what, what this kid is doing. I'll get together with him and I'll perform for him. I'll, I'll build it for him. So that builder got me to my first, call it, financing broker at the mm-hmm. time. We, they're no longer in business now. And that broker saw that we had a basis that was zero. The gentleman bought the site that he owned for about $25,000 in 1983. The basis was nothing. I bought the 25 by 100 next door for 140000 So my basis was, again, zero. And I'm building 22 units. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew I was very, very low on the stack. So we went. He went and, and got me over with his broker. His broker put together an OM, which I didn't know what it was at the time. Did a performer, obviously. And went and got us, what's the name of this bank? China uh, Trust Bank, which is now not in business. China Trust. China Trust. China Trust okay, Bank. Cool. 
And China Trust Bank gave us a loan for $13.4 million. The gentleman that owned the land put his land, I put mine, and the builder put a guarantee. Again, I didn't know. But he put the guarantee, and here it goes, came the first one. We built it, and the building is still there today. We built that building for about $10.8 million bucks at the time, refinanced it, and still control it to this day. Once you take that, right, and you do it, and you say, now I'm 23, 24, and I have this, I could replicate this. And that's exactly what I did. In Williamsburg, what made the Jewish community so strong is that they basically would take this glass and create it like you see it here, and then they'll copy it and put it here again and copy it 20 times. That's what they did with real estate. They will copy the same project 20 times, and that's how they got so big so fast. So I copy the same style. I say, wait, why do I need to refigure it out? I need to find another 75 by 100 or 50 by 100 and just copy and paste. Same lender, same thing, and we just made it a windmill. How many did you do? About six of those, mm-hmm. I will say. And when did the prices start going up? Because everyone 2005. Out what you're doing. 2005. So you, had a, you had a run of a bunch of them but before that happened. But what saved me is that by that time, I was already a little more awakened and I was a little more ingrained with certain people. And I have been told about what Harlem was. And I went into Harlem in 2003 and four. And Harlem, if you guys know anything, was burned out. There was nothing there. All the buildings were empty. So I said, hey, now I don't have to build it. The building's already up. Now I could just take the building and rebuild it. And now I could do it in half the time. Basically, I will take the plan that I took on a building that I did before, <laughs> copy it on a shell. So I'll buy a 20-unit shell, 40-unit shell, and just copy and paste and do it over. And I did that over and over and over and over. Okay. So we're going to need to change the subject so that we can move to the next topic. Sure. But talk about education for a minute. Sure. Because you did college, a little bit of college, bit. and then somehow that got you to an investment bank, to Lehman Brothers. So, well, I want to tie those things together. Correct. My young adult life, when I came back from the Dominican Republic and started getting into the, in the business, was three things in one. I was working as an agent, as a broker for Century 21 Cruise in Queens, Roosevelt and 81st Street. I was working as a security guard overnight, 4 to 12, and sometimes 12 to 8, to pay for school and everything else because I didn't get any grants. And then I went to Catherine Gibbs School. Unfortunately, I went to a good high school, uh, which is known as Murray Bertram in downtown Manhattan. But the counselors there were not that great at giving advice to their students. They did not tell us what the best schools would be, what the best curriculum for us to follow should be, things like that. So I basically took the advice of this person and went what would be a vocational college, which is not accredited, right? Doesn't have a big name to it. And I said, hey, my parents just want me to go to college. Everybody wants me to go to college. So this is college, I'm going to go. I went, but it was literally a waste of time because I learned a few things, but I didn't learn enough. Luckily for me, I was already doing deals. So in between doing deals over here, working as a security guard over here, and being in a school over here, I met somebody that said, hey, you're in this business. I don't know what you're doing in the school, but you need to quit. Like now, you need to quit, and you need to go to Baruch College. And I said, why would I go to Baruch College? Baruch College, $40,000 a year or something at the time? I said, you know, I can't afford this. I said, no, 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 you'll get a Pell Grant, you get this, you get that, go to Baruch College. Okay, I went to Baruch College. Problem is that my credits were not transferable. That's when I learned that my beautiful degree was worth zero, unfortunately. So I went to Baruch College, Baruch College tells me no. Okay, then I went to Columbia. Columbia, I didn't know how high it was at the time. Obviously, Columbia turned me down, and I went to NYU. NYU at the time had a transfer program, if you want to call it, where if you were in the business and you had understandings of certain things, they'll give you a test. And if you basically passed a certain level, they'll let you get into an intro course. And I got in. And I went in there and I started. But then the problem is that I cannot get any financial aid. And when I went in, couldn't get financial aid. The school was so expensive that I had to quit. But the amount of time that I spent there got me to kind of see what the business really was about, learn 
who the players were in the city, who was running why, because most of their kids go to school there and kind of understand what the real playing field was outside of Brooklyn. So Brooklyn really was nothing in front of my hand at the time. But unfortunately, I didn't get the education that I wanted. I supplemented it and honestly learned it by doing deals. I didn't get any education. I had to figure it out as I went, which honestly, I will not tell anyone to take that road because it's a little bit harder to take some punches at the beginning. But at the same time, if you want to start earlier like I did, it could be a way for you to start up and get going. But you have to you have to have your heart into it. You cannot you and cannot play. how did that parlay or not parlay into Lehman Brothers? Well the Lehman Brothers thing was a little weird. I got an internship when I was at Catherine Gibbs at Goldsmith and Barnes. It's a law firm on Madison and thirty eighth Street. I was just an intern doing files and, and my studies in Catherine Gibbs was uh, a business administration. So they sent me to basically work in a law firm to learn how to put files away put computer files in place, things like that. Nothing serious. You're a security guard. You're studying how to do filing, except you're also buying and financing Right, and no one knew that I was doing that. (laughs) And no one knew I was doing that. I kept that very quiet for a lot of reasons. I felt that I could not get a job if people knew that I was doing deals, so I kept it quiet. So I'm working at the law firm, and in the law firm, it was the first time in my life that I got to see this magazine. The name is Real Estate Alert. Real Estate Alert is a real estate magazine that used to come out, I think, monthly or quarterly, whatever it is. weekly. And at the time, it used to be the namesake for any big deals. It was the first time in my life that I got to see what $100 million looked like. Oh, Lehman for $100 million. Oh, this guy, Gomez, for $300 million. And I just was, I said, wait a minute, who's moving all this money? What is this? I didn't know that the world even moved in that kind of scale. And when I read that, I got hooked to it. So I became a subscriber. I paid for a subscription. It was $12.50. Yeah, it was nothing. It was like, no, no, I mean $1,250 or $950. I mean, to to, to me, I I said, hey, I'll spend it. I want to read it. And I started reading this thing, and I just got immersed in what these guys were doing and what Lehman was doing and what Boston was doing at the time. Vernado was just starting out. Yeah, I saw Green at the time was a new, was not even a read yet, and they were buying half a Midtown. And I said, wait a minute, these guys control this? Oh, my God, I, I could literally do this. So my boss knew somebody at Lehman, and I went to him. I, I honestly overheard him talking one time, and I said, look, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to learn that. What does it take to, to get a job there? And he said, Ricardo, you can never work there unless you came out of an Ivy League school. You're not going to get there. And I said, okay, could I do something in the summer or anything like that? So he got me into a meeting with a gentleman where he was coming to see him at the law firm. Mm-hmm. And we started talking. I told him what I was doing. And he said, wait, so you're telling me that you're developing this and this and that in Brooklyn? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, I want to see it. He didn't believe it. So I said, okay. We took the L train to Brooklyn, took my old station wagon in, in one of the buildings, and that was it. And Property he said, tour. Yeah. He said, you know what? Come with us. And that's what got me into my internship. And was the internship in the real estate group? Real estate group. And what year is this? This is 2002, 2003. I okay, and Lehman's top of the heap. Oh, no, those guys. The most those, aggressive I real can tell estate you that they were, thing. all due respect to them, I, I, even if they listen to this, I want to be respectful, but, you know, they were cowboys. Yeah, yeah. I cannot say it any other way. They were cowboys. I saw things running out of there that I could not even believe was happening. We were doing deals on one or two and three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. everybody gets tired and goes home at 7 p.m. We were working at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning making deals, wiring money at 80 and 90 million a pop every other day, sending $100 million out the door every other day. That was our business. Obviously, it wasn't the one signing off on that. I was only doing analytics and learning how to do little simple Excels, but I'm doing the Excels that later become what that guy's wiring, and I'm here, I'm screaming on the phone, send the money, send the money now, I have to do the deal tomorrow morning. It was amazing. Sometimes they did LOIs in the morning, at 6.30 in the morning, and by the time I got to the office at 7 p.m., the money was going out right? for them to close on something else in the morning. So when I got in Lehman is when I really, between reading the magazine and then seeing it for real, I said, the world is much bigger than I think it is. 
and it opened my view corridor and I said, these things that I'm doing, 100,000 and, you know, I mean, it's, it's nothing. These boys here are moving $50 million in their sleep. You know, what right. am I doing? And I said, you know what? I cannot come to Manhattan. I cannot operate in Manhattan because I knew when I was in Lehman who the operators were now. Trump was a client, big client, uh, the Durst family clients. I mean, I heard all those big names there. It was the first time I heard of them. And I said, I could try to do something of scale with these kind of relationships, but in Brooklyn, not here. Yeah, so let's just think about this because you're thinking of broadening of perspective. Correct. And the first perspective is there's this lot, and the lot is owned by the guy with the sound equipment. He's yeah. putting boom boxes in cars. That's right. That's the first lot. That's right. And then you're expanding to do 10 of those because the Hasidic guys did that. That's right. I copy and now and all of a sudden you get real estate alert and you see the broader world through like reading the magazine. Correct. And now you're at Lehman watching the money flow big time. It's just running out the door like, like, like there's you, no tomorrow's never going to run And you out. know you can't do Manhattan. So now you're, that. you have the broad perspective, but then you come back and go, I could do Brooklyn, but I can't do Manhattan. So when I was working, I used to work as a security guard for First Security Corporation. And my account was 499 Park Avenue. I don't uh -huh. know if you know that building. That's 48th Street and Park Avenue. It's where UBS is. So UBS, uh, my job, was I was a rover. So I worked from 55th floor to 32, coming down floor by floor. So I used to see the executive suites, the vault on 50, which is super secure, and then all the trading desk. Right. So I'm walking through this thing. You hear these guys talking, the stuff that they're talking about, and the CEO's talking about what they're talking about. And I said, between what I'm learning in the law firm, what I'm learning at Lehman and hearing here, this world is very... Wait, you're still security guard while you were at Lehman? Yes. Yeah, I was working overnight. Of okay. I was working yeah. overnight. Yeah, because again, I couldn't pay for school. I couldn't pay for it. No one even gave me a Pell Grant, so I had to work. And you're still at Catherine Gibbs while you're doing each of those things Correct. too. So but basically, what I, my internship was only sometimes three hours, sometimes two hours. Okay. It varied. It wasn't a full-time job. Okay. So how much more time in New York before you moved to your first deal outside of New York? So kind of... In a couple minutes, finish up with New York of course. and then how you bounced out to I'll, other places. I'll tell you that very quickly. So Michael Bloomberg becomes mayor in 2000 and what, 2000 and 2000 or 2001 when the towers came down? Okay. Right? Michael Bloomberg hires a gentleman by the name of Dan Doctoroff. Hmm. Dan Doctoroff's job was to rezone New York City. Yep. I heard about it in the office in Lehman Brothers. I heard what they were doing and they said, he's going to rezone half the planet. We need to be on top of that. They were doing opinion letters inside the firm saying how they could capitalize on that. So I heard what they were going to do on the waterfront of, of Dumbo and what they were going to do in Long Island City. They never spoke about Greenpoint or Brooklyn, but I said, okay, good to know. All right. My internship now ends, right? And I'm now in Brooklyn doing what I'm doing. And I start seeing the leaflets from the community boards asking people to say, hey, would you approve this kind of a rezoning if it was to come down? And right away, the light bulb went off. And I said, wait a minute. I'm not going to do these houses anymore. Let me see what I can get on the waterfront. So in 2004, mid-2004, I started using a system called ACRIS. ACRIS is the public system for uh, public documents in New York, mortgages, deeds, everything else. And I basically mapped everything from the Salvation Army all the way to Greenpoint, the inlet. That's 34 or 39 properties. I looked for every deed, every mortgage, every name, every trust, everything. And I started basically calling people, call calling, which I learned in my days as a broker, as an agent. So I call called, call called. And this gentleman named George calls me back one day in mid-2004 and says, you know what, your letters, I was sending letters and sending uh, and making calls, and he said, your letters are interesting to me. Come and see me. Let's speak about this site. Four acres on the waterfront in Greenpoint that was about to be in the rezoning plan that was going on there. So I met him in 2004. I spoke to him about possibly doing or helping him do the rezoning, the same way that I did with Raphael many years before, 
And at this time, I, I had already kind of controlled my pitch a little better when I knew how to sell it a little better. And I sounded like I kind of knew what I was doing when I really didn't know what I was doing. And I really did not, guys. Not at all. I think that was every step along the way. Yeah, I did not know what I was doing. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know the animal I was even looking at. And, you know, I told them, I said, look, I know what the city is going to do. I know what, what they're going to be bringing on. And if we do nothing more than just follow their program, we'll be fine. Meaning, if they say that we're going to get a 6 FAR, let's do a 6 FAR. They do a 13 FAR, follow 13. Don't ask for more. You have nothing now. So anything you get above that is gravy. And he said, you know what? That's a great idea. Why don't you run that? And I said, you know what? Why don't you give me an option instead? For me to buy it. And he said, I'll give you an option. You got to give me half a million dollars. Okay. And did you find the half million dollars? I borrowed it from two Hasidic guys that I knew at 15% interest. And I paid the option. <laughs> and then that option, I took it to one of my teachers in NYU. And I said, look, I have this great piece. something great thing I want to do. Great property on the waterfront. It's overlooking 34th Street, the helipad. The teacher went, went to see it with me. He said, I have somebody that I want you to meet. And he had me meet this attorney a prior cashman at the time. Well, he had me call him. Let me be honest. He had me call him. I call, call him for maybe three or four months or five months. He did not answer. And he decided to pick up my phone call one time because his secretary uh, stated to him that he should speak to me. And he met me and said, yeah, I heard this person told you to call me. Come see me. And I went to Park Avenue 51st Street, met the attorney, brought a big map and a top-down view of the site. And he said, do you tell me that you have an option on this? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, let's go to Brooklyn. We went to Brooklyn. He met the owner with me. And he said, Ricardo, we're going to become partners. And at that point, we formed what's known as Branford Partners. Branford Partners was owned majority by him, minority by me. And what Branford Partners was going to do is basically go to the rezoning to buy and rezone that site. And that's how I got into my first major deal. It was $83.5 million. He went and got me in front of a family office that he was very friendly with. The family office blessed us with a $5 million investment without asking many questions at the time, which was great. And we went and got on. And that's how we went. That's how I went from being a very little guy to being a much bigger guy very, very quickly. This is 2005. And how old are you now? I was now 25. 25? Or 26. I'm, I'm thinking camel through the head of a pin. Right? Yeah. Right? I, I don't know how. You, we know how you accomplished this because you've told the story like four or five times. So you yeah. followed your playbook. You just kept going. Yeah. I go right back down to what I said at the beginning. The idea that you can do it. I don't know how else to explain it. You know, it's something that you got to say to yourself, yeah, I'm not supposed to be operating at that level, but I think that I could do a few things to elevate there. When I got the option, I didn't even tell my dad that I had it because I, I thought he was not going to believe that I could do something like that. Mm -hmm. I told my dad that I had the site the day that we signed the operating agreement, which was the first time in my life I seen an operating agreement. I didn't know what an operating agreement was. And when I signed it, I walked to Central Park on 51st Street. I was dating a young lady at the time, and me and that young lady walked to the park. And she said, you need to tell your dad. And I said, oh, I'm going to tell him. And I called him on the phone. I had a Nextel phone at the time. And I told him, I said, Dad, I just signed a deal to buy a, uh, four acres on the waterfront. He said, what are you talking about? And I said, uh, meet me at 141 West Street. I want to show you something. Mm -hmm. And I met him on the site. And that's when, that was the first time that he got whiff of what I, was going, what I was doing for the past 10, 11 months when I got that done. And we, the way we did it was we bought options. So we paid about a million dollars a year for the option while we went through the entitlement. And once we got to the entitlement, we paid the balance. We, they gave us credit on the price on that and paid for the entitlement cost along the way. We hired a very top-of-the-line architect. We hired a very top-gun law firm, lobbying firm. And that's how I learned how the real big-time development business works, how politics works, how it, it works to deal with council members and everything else. I learned that right then and there. And I had to learn very fast. The attorney basically had me doing all the work. And he was in his office. He would say, hey, go to the business department and do this. Go to this agency and do that. Meet this council member and tell them that. And I was basically a messenger boy, running back and forth. And that experience showed me what it was to deal 
in this planet. And you're in control because you have the option. Correct. You're the kid that correct. all of your consultants are training to that help to do the thing you're going to do so that you can all do so well. The only reason why I could tell the story today about me owning a site like that at that age is because I held the option first. Yeah. I had control. And so every other a, site in that area is getting bought by the big guys. Very, very quickly. So I took that option and I said, look, you want the site? No problem. It's right here. We have to do something together. And yeah. he said, you know what? I have no way around it. You have a good price. Let's get together. And that's how So tell out. us the outcome of that deal and then how you moved outside of New York. I'll tell you exactly how that happened. So I'll backtrack now to 2004. I was finishing a building at uh, 308 West 141st Street in Harlem. 24-unit building, nothing sexy, nothing crazy. At the time, I was still t- thinking and talking about the Greenpoint site that I, that I got. Okay, great. I meet this broker, and this broker tells me, Ricardo, you're doing pretty well here in Harlem. But me and my partner, two brokers, were buying property in Michigan, apartment buildings. And he told me, Ricardo, if you're going crazy here, but I think if you go to Michigan, you could kill it over there. We're buying buildings at $5,000 and $20,000 a door. We could do X, Y, and Z. And I said, who will sell their building at $20,000 a door? That makes no sense. So he said, Ricardo, take a trip with us, and we'll show you what it is. And lo and behold, I, I don't know why I felt that that makes some sense. And I took a plane with them and went to Detroit in uh-huh. 2004 the first time. I don't know a lot about Detroit, but I used to travel there before sure. it got crazy. This is sure. like 40 years ago. It's crazy now. And the one name I remember from Detroit from when I was there 40 years ago was Book. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the building you bought. That I bought. So you don't just go to Detroit and like, you know, you're not buying small apartment buildings or building nope. in a little empty I went straight lot. into that. Straight so into that. that. And, and I'll tell you how, how And what that was the book for those, anyone ever hear the book Cadillac? Uh, well, okay, it's the Book get, Tower and the Book Cadillacs. Okay. It's two separate buildings. It, okay. It's known as the Book Tower Complex, but it's two buildings made up of the Book Tower, which is a 28-story building and a 12-story building, and then the Book Cadillac across the street, which is the hotel, built by the Book family in the 1900s, 1908, 1912, and 1924, respectively. And the Book Hotel, Book Cadillac, Cadillac yeah. is, just so you all know, you could tell better, but that is the place in Detroit, back when Detroit was the That's center right. of American industry. That's right. Presidents. Presidents, Frank actors, Sinatra. anybody was anybody. If you wanted to be in the Midwest, you had to stay there. You were nobody if you didn't stay so there. So Ricardo, now the 26-year-old. I was 26. Okay, and I'm just guessing, and you bought that the, building. The, well, actually, the way that happened, Greenpoint and the book were hovering at the same time. Meaning, I was negotiating for the option and trying to go for that site. At the same time, I was taking the flights and the trips into Detroit. Uh-huh. It took me, honestly, a year, maybe a year and a half to convince Susan Lambrick, the owner at the time, to sell me the book tower. You know, I met her in late 2004 in Detroit through a, through a common friend that the brokers got me introduced to. And just so you know, the, the way I got there is when they showed me these apartment buildings in areas that were very very serious, like Highland Park and 8 Mile and all these other places that are very, very, very bad in Detroit at the time and probably uh-huh. still are today. I didn't want to be in an area that was dangerous to me, safety-wise. And honestly, we went to dinner in one of the trips I took up there, and I saw downtown how empty it was, and I saw all these gems. Think about it. I'm used to seeing New York with a thousand people running around, all these gorgeous buildings, and yet I come to the city, all these gems are around me, and they're all empty. No lights, no nothing, everything. Even when, you, when I took my flights out of the city, I couldn't see the city because everything right. was dead dark. And that stood in the back of my head. And I said, you know, how much can I buy one of these buildings here for? So I started learning what they were selling for. And I thought that they were basically giveaways in front of what I saw in New York. Uh-huh. So I said, look, let's start looking. And I started looking. And one of the buildings that was told to me early as, as a building that was 
well-known and asset to have was the book tower. And let me ask, I keep asking dates and I apologize for that, but I'm, I'm having trouble tracking it because yeah. it's also quick. That's right. But also the time that you wound up buying this is before Bedrock. Oh, way before. Came in I saw the There's a whole podcast about Detroit, so just so you know. So we talked to the biggest developer in Detroit. Of course. But you were before then. Way before. I was the first outsider to buy in Detroit since the 80s. I didn't know it at the time, but I was the first guy in 20, maybe 30 years to put a single dime in downtown Detroit. Okay. I was the first guy. So it took me a year and a half to have Susan decide to speak to me. And Susan Lambrecht was a very well-known lady. Her husband, John Lambrecht, committed suicide a few years before she inherited a vast portfolio of properties from him. The book tower was one of many. She used to own the Ford. She used to own a lot of other buildings. And, you know, she was in a great position financially, but she didn't know what she had. and She wasn't managing it well. And she got to a situation where DT Energy, the biggest energy company in Detroit, had her on the hook for $700,000 in, in uh, utility bills that she couldn't pay. Uh-huh. I read about this in a newspaper post, and I called her up and I said, Susan, I think you have a problem here. I could pay your electricity bills if we turn that into an option. And that's how the deal for the book towers won. Option again. Yeah. So I would love to talk more about that, but we're going to run out of time. Yeah. So we need to get to California. Sure. So at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about you're discovering that you couldn't do all that you wanted to do in New York because it's controlled. Correct. Even though somehow you did Correct. these deals. Um, what brought you here and how did that work? And talk about the things that you're working on here and the change of your life and coast. Sure. So Detroit was what it was. We went and luckily were able to build a West End. The West End opened in 2010 to total fanfare. The book tower I had entitled, but I could not get it built because either the city was going bankrupt or the whole country was going bankrupt. Couldn't do anything about it. So I said, you know, my life coming back to New York financially, I don't have the wherewithal to fight with the guys there. Let me look somewhere else. So I came to Phoenix on a whim of guys telling me that apartment buildings at that time in 2010 and 11 were being sold at fire sale. So I said, let me go to Phoenix. I met someone in Phoenix while trying to buy a building called Estancia del Sol on 48th Street and Camelback Road in South Phoenix. And the lender was East West Bank. I came to LA the first time to meet the bank so I could review the documents and buy the loan, which I was later going to foreclose upon and take somebody's building over. I went and uh, came to California, to LA the first time, sat in a hotel, and the story that I said earlier happened, where I came to downtown, looked around down here, and I said, wait a minute, this is not Detroit. This is definitely not New York, but this is not dead either. This is a city that has 8 million people, a lot of money, and a lot of abilities. I said, I think that I could take these buildings down here and do what I couldn't do in Detroit at all because the economy is not there, and what I couldn't do in New York because I didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. And I put my plans down here, and I started and said, I'm going to make my business 1st Street, 110 Highway, Los Angeles Street, to 11th Street. Nothing else. I stay there. So you come here as a stranger. Correct. How do you insert yourself into this marketplace? How do you insert yourself into politics, the network, and find partners? And some of your deals are with partners. That took time. The the partners I brought from outside, I knew they were not going to come from here. The capital I brought from outside, I knew it was not going to come from here either. The way that I got it done was, if anything I learned in Detroit, Detroit's a very union town, very interconnected town. Everybody's connected there. I learned how to use the third parties to do the introductions, the attorneys. I learned what it was to hire a high-powered attorney, high-powered accountant, and these guys know a lot of people. So I did the same thing here. I hired DLA Piper early. I hired all the law firms early, and they were able to introduce me to certain people that I otherwise would not crisscross. So council members and, and other folks. 
And because of that, I got an understanding of who was who in the city very quickly and who it was that I needed to work with in order to get things done very quickly. I said that my business was going to be buying existing historic buildings and doing adaptive reuse because the, the, the ordinance had just been passed in 2010. And I said, I'm going to focus on that. And I did that. And it worked. The first couple of years, that worked. Did a few flips, did a few other things. But I knew that I came to LA with one thing, one thing only, and that was to grow the scale beyond what I could ever do in the East Coast or in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. That's how it started here. Okay. So talk about signature deals that you have done and you might do here. Sure. And these will be very real to the audience because they know real. LA. Very, very real. So let's go back to 2014. I was sitting in the office of the LA Piper uh, with a very well-known land use attorney, very good friend. And I told him, I said, you know, I would like to find a project of scale, something serious, something of scale that makes some sense to do in the city. And he said, well, Ricardo, the only project that I know that's been lingering in the city's coffers for ages is a project by the name of Y-1. I didn't know what that meant, and I said, what is that? He said, well, it's a big piece of dirt that people think is a park, and, you know, they would love to do something. They've been holding on it since the late 80s. You know, I think you have the ideas that could make something like that work. So I left this office. I went to the site, which is 4th Street and Hill, uh, which is now known as Angel's Landing, and I saw it for the first time in 2014. And I was hooked. I was sold. I said, you know, Bunker Hill, in the middle of everything, there's no other land there, the highest FAR you could ever get, no bulk or height limits here. I said... If I could get, find a way to get this in my control, I could do the same thing I did in New York, only that I could do it now in front. Think about it. In New York, I was involved, yes, but the whole time I was back here, meaning that the players were the ones that were known. They were in front here. I, I was never known as the guy that did all of that until much later. I said, here, I could play the other way. I could take over the site and be the guy that people know that's actually doing it. So in 2014, we started talking. I started discussing with the CRA. CRA was not ready to do a deal. They were not willing to sole source it. They needed to do it through a public process. And then the CRA goes bankrupt or disbanded. disbanded. It was disbanded by, by the governor. And all the properties were given back, so that made me waste another year. I came back when the successor agency was put together, and I went ahead and tried again. They said, no, we're going to put it up for RFP. So backtracking many years, I have met in Detroit uh, Don Peebles. He is from Detroit. His business is in Washington, D.C., and he grew in Miami and then went to New York, but he is from Detroit. I met him there to the mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick, and Kwame put us together. We were friends. It was nothing more than that. But when he went to New York, we got a little bit closer. You know, he would call me about things he wanted to do. I would call on him on things that I wanted to do. And we had a friendly bond. I always knew that he was really well known. He's, you know, very charismatic. He has a lot of presence, always in the news and everything else. But most especially, he knew how to do RFPs better than anyone that I knew. And he was not only able, he knew how to do them, he knew how to win them. So I said, if I'm going to go after something like this, I need an edge. I know the politicians here. I know how the process works here, but I don't have a name or a face. So I went to him and I said, Don, I have something I want to show you. I know you've been looking at doing a marquee project in New York, but it hasn't exactly panned out the way you want it. I think I found what that may be. In L.A.? In L.A. Had he done L.A.? He, done he had never done anything in L.A. I think he had done something in Vegas at the time, and he had done something in San Francisco, never here. And maybe he was looking, but he never found it. So we went to see the North Hollywood site that the MTA owns on Lancashire and Chandler, and we gave up on that one very quickly, and then I brought him down here on a tour one day. We came down here, and we were in, in his car, his limousine, and we sat down in front of the site on the corner. Both of us got out, and he said, this is it. He said, this is what we need to chase, and that's where Angels Landing Partners was formed, in that corner. And we said, you know, we're going to put together an army to fight this. We don't know who's going to come, but we're going to win this. And effectively, you know, late 2015 is when the conversation started. Victor was not involved yet at the time. Victor came later <laughs> into the mix. 
Victor McFarlane. McFarlane, yes. Uh-huh. And was he the third wheel, or were there four or five wheels? You said no, the third wheel. It was only three of us. Okay. It was only three of us. The deal was very simple. You know, I was the boots on the ground, the guy that knew all the local connections, the council member, the mayor, all these people. And he was Hang the Hang on a second. You're the boots on the ground. You knew all these people. You'd yeah. been here two years. No, I've been. This is 2015, so I've been there 2012, so three years. Oh, th- sorry. Okay, just remember this, guys, because you're all here in this town, and I know what it feels like to say, I'm going to get something done, I'm going to get something done. So I'm just reminding everyone of the weight of your words. Okay, yeah. cool. So you run it, you know all these guys now. I have met them to different channels during yeah. those years, and because I knew, again, coming from Detroit, I knew that the power to these things was getting in politically, getting in, you know, socially and uh-huh. everything else. So instead of buying buildings, what I did first was getting socially, and then I bought buildings. So... We get into the conversation, and the city said, yeah, we're going to put it out for bid in late 2015. Came and went. They didn't do anything about it. We're going to do it in 2016. Came and went. They did nothing about it. Late in 2016, they said, we're going to do it. And by the time they did that, we already had a team. Victor was already involved. Don was there. I was there. You know, we had an architect. We had a plan. We knew what the project was going to look like. We just needed to find a way to push through. And this is how the project started to come. The biggest thing and the biggest difference in that project, more than, than us being minorities, a lot of people think that we want it because of the minority card or anything, anything else. The biggest thing there was thinking outside the box beyond what any other developer could think about. I have a daughter, right? My, my daughter, she's uh, about to be 12. This year is 11 now. And I always thought, I said, you know, if my daughter ever came to L.A., I would want her to go to school. Problem is that if I live in downtown L.A., there's no schools in core downtown L.A. where we have thousands of units being built here. I said, what I need to do if I want to bring her down here, I need to build a school. So I said to Don people, I said, look, you know, as part of this, since they want us to put a community piece to this, we need to do a community engagement piece to this. Instead of doing a museum like everybody does or affordable housing like everybody does, I mean, you have to do affordable housing anyway, but they do that as the quote-unquote community benefit. I said, no, we have to do affordable housing anyway, so that's over here. Let's do a real amenity, not a park or another thing. Let's build a real amenity. And I said, an amenity is a school. And I said, I would like to build a school, K through five. And he went along with the plan. He said, hey, find somebody that we could partner with that, that would be good. I knew a gentleman that had a charter school. He's very well known. He's a movie producer and movie theater developer. And I went to him, sat down with him. He loved the idea. He led me with a couple of the people that he knew. And I learned the school business, how that worked. And that world is totally different than anything else I have ever dealt with. But I learned that that was the piece that would make the difference. More than the hotels, more than the 80 stories that everybody knows, the billion dollars everybody talks, talks about. That's what made the yeah. difference. And what are the different uses? So there's a school, charter school, one yeah. through five. K through Talk, five. K through five. Talk so about So you have a couple of components. You have two hotels. So you have market rate housing, affordable, condo, and then you have the school at the base. And a little bit of retail, which the retail really feeds the F&B for the hotel. That's really what it is. It's not really storefront retail per uh-huh. se. Restaurant, restaurants and stuff like that. And look, it's very difficult to develop a project like that. You know, you can only imagine what it is to build elevators and, and entrances and egress in, in something like this. But, you know, this is the task that we were put with and the site became what, what Angel's Landing is today, which took a while to and refine. What's, is it, I should know this, is it built? No, Angel's Landing, Angel's Landing is halfway through its entitlement. Uh, we're hoping to see if we get it done, the entitlement, by the end of this year. And if we do that, then we would like to break ground a year, year and a half from now. We're going to need to move on, but yes. a couple questions on this one. Yes. What's the total anticipated cost of development? A billion three. Okay, uh, billion three. A billion three all in. The land was probably the, the smallest thing out of the entire budget, but about okay. a billion three. I'm trying to think back how many years before you'd put that lot together for your first development with that first option. 13 years. 13 years, you're to a billion three. That's yeah. about, I guess, a 
hundred million a year or something. About, about 104 million. Yeah, about a year. Okay, that's yeah. pretty good. Okay, and then- I thought um, about that myself. Where did the dough come from? How do you put the capital stack very, together? Very, funny, very the funny. The Hasidic guy's not involved anymore, or no? Not at this point, no. Okay. I mean, look, the luck is that, you know, Don Peebles is a very wealthy guy. You know, yeah. Victor, on his own, is very wealthy too. So a project of that size, I knew that they could be the anchor that I needed financially without looking outside anywhere else because it interested them. So we decided to basically be the providers of capital ourselves proactively and, and control our destiny on our own. So they have majority, I have minority, and we pay our bills directly. We don't have any outside investors or partners so far. Unbelievable. And before we go to wrap up, what am I missing in the story that is a headline that we need to talk about in terms of transactions or your company or your pathway or what's next? That's a lot of questions. Yeah, I know. I mean, look, what makes us different, a lot of people ask us, like, how do we make things happen? How do we continue to transcend? We tend to operate where other people don't want to operate. And it's not because it's impossible. A lot of guys could do it. It's just we find our niche where other people do not want to be involved. When I went into the Angels Landing project, everyone, including my father, my own attorney, said that I would not win it and I should not do it. It was going to be a total loss of money. I could tell you that the same thing was done when I bought the book Tower. My father, I could tell you guys that my father was screaming at me the day that he found out that I bought it. Screaming. And what was the negative advice on Angels Landing? Why not? I had no name. I had no track record. I had for that kind of project. This right? is for you, no, not for the me. Site. But but site's a good site. Site Go is a great site, site, but they needed somebody that was known, somebody that was politically connected, somebody that had everything that I did not have, right? And sure, you know, your partners are great, but they've done nothing like that here and done people's in New York. All these excuses, and I said, guys, those are excuses. Where I come from, we take excuses, we throw them to the side, and we go a thousand miles an hour. And that's how we got here. And look, we went from being someone that was not even thought about as being a contender to being a top four in, in six, seven, eight months. And, you know, then we went to being a top two. And from a top two, we won. And even though I was super surprised the night that I got the call, I could tell you that I was surprised, but I wasn't surprised. Because what got me here was saying, I can do it. Again, the same thing I told myself in 2000. I can do it. It's, it's not the end of the world. We can try. We can make it happen. And that's what happened there. We thought that we could make it happen, and we did. Now, going forward, I'm not the kind of guy that's looking to do billion-dollar deals every other day. I, I don't want to get What's it wrong. What's next but, is going to be trillion. But, I mean, but, <laughs> possibly. I mean, look, I'll be honest. We, 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 as you know, we discussed this on the phone. I was bidding and, and was buying the Ocean White Center site from Ocean White in San Francisco. I walked out of the negotiations because of the whole intricacies of what Ocean White wanted and what we wanted to do. SPF was second behind us on the bidding. They took over and they're now buying it, but we were behind that. That, that project is $2 billion in, in size. Again, the reason we were taking that is because it was an opportunity, an opportunity that I was not going to see twice. And possibly, for all I know, the project may come around and I may have a second chance at bat, and maybe I'll do that. And currently, we're looking at uh, Ocean White Plaza here down the street, which we're trying to see if we can actually acquire. So, uh-huh. so there's more to come. How do you like living on the West Coast versus the East Coast? And one thing I, you do have to talk about is cycling, because we're both cyclists, and yeah. it's a hell of a lot better here than it is in 1,000%. Brooklyn. 1,000%. Life here is much better. Lifestyle is much better. Look, I could get used to an 80-degree day on a month like this. Instead, <laughs> My father was telling me that today was 41 over there. I could get very used to being at 79. So now I barely even go to New York in the winters, which is sad. But, you know, you can get used to the life. It's a little more mellow here. It's a big city, but it's more mellow. I could go from being in the mountains one day to being in the beach the same day or being in a hike. Can't do that in New York, even if I tried, even if I 
went outside two hours, you can't do that. So lifestyle for me was better here. I felt that I could get more communicated with the folks here. It's, it's well, I don't know, 60% Hispanic or, or whatever the number is here. So I felt a little bit more at home. And as far as the business edge, there was no one leading the charge here. There was no SL Green controlling the, the city, Durst controlling the city. I could keep going, Rudin's of the world control that doesn't exist here you have brookfield and everything else but no one is controlling and i said i could make my mark here and control not totally control but have my mark here without anybody totally knocking knocking me off my feet and that's why i stayed and again the balance between life and business is great here and honestly i haven't seen it anywhere else from here i'll expand wherever we go next so cool i always ask the last question on leading voices but You've been talking about it the whole time, but I'm going to ask you the question anyhow. If you had advice for a young person getting into the real estate business, what would that advice be? First of all, depending where you are in life or what your path in life is, you have to let go of fear. You know, fear is your first block. You have a lot of blocks in life. A lot of blockages are going to slow you down. Your, Your parents, your family, girlfriend, wife, whatever it is, your job, whatever it is. You need to get past those blockages if you're thinking about getting anywhere. You ain't going to get anywhere if you're afraid of taking steps. You have to fall in order to get a win. I talk here about all the wins that I had. There's a lot of falls that I also took that I'm not talking about here. We don't have enough time. But at the end of the day, those falls allow you to learn what it takes to stand up and maintain and grow. And honestly, people respect the falls that you take. I could tell you that when I bought the book tower in Detroit, I almost took a fall and I didn't. But people respected that I stood, I held on. And I maintained instead of losing everything and walking out with a tail between my legs. The advice would be not have any fear. Have fear to control the decisions you make, but not fear to the point where you cannot move. You have no motion. You have no drive. And honestly, believe that you can do it. If you see somebody else like me doing it, don't think that I'm the only story in this planet that can happen. I got here because I decided to try if you try something, you don't need to try to do a billion-dollar deal if you don't want to, but try to buy a duplex. Try to buy a 20-unit building. Go to another city and do deals in, in Texas or something. Just try it. And for all you know, you might make it. For all you know, you end up with a portfolio that you thought you could never get or a business that you thought you could never get. And then from there, no one can stop you. That's what got me here. That would be my two cents. Long two cents. It's interesting. I've done 66 of these interviews with a lot of people who have been phenomenally successful. I will count you among the most successful of the, those people from the distance from bottom to top. Agreed. In such a short period of time, in Agreed. such an amazing way of willpower. Thank you. And belief in just going forward. Thank you. It's amazing. Do we have any questions from the audience? We may have a few minutes. And uh, I'm going to repeat. You asked the question. I'll repeat it. So I'll call on you first. Question is, what authors have most profoundly shaped your perspective? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. And I, I don't know if I even could even call him an author. I would call it more of a book. I could tell you that when I got into the development business and I was reading the, the real estate magazines at those days, I read every single book that Donald Trump made at the time. Because to me at the time, he was in the 70s. I don't know now. You know it's a, diff- a little different to agree with him now. But in you know 1975, 1980s, 1990s, Donald Trump, who, the guy that was building the Grand Hyatt and the Trump Tower, that was a story that I liked, so I read that, but I learned who Warren Buffett was because of his book. So I picked up his books, and I became a fan in 30 seconds. Warren Buffett, to me, is the biggest brain, the best brain that probably is going to ever exist, so number one. Cool. The question from the audience was, do you still own that first deal? No. Uh, 1082 Pacific Street, I sold it in 2003, and I bought and I bought my second apartment building with that money. I sold it for 
400 grand at the time. So I made a few dollars and I took that as a deposit to buy something else. It, the, the word we promised to use in this, which we haven't used, is bootstrapping. So wait, yeah. how does this get to that to get to yep, that to yep, get to yep, that? Yep. And if you hold on to all of it, you can't It's bootstrap. impossible. Uh, I mean, at the beginning, you have no choice but to buy and either refinance or what I did, which is buy, grow the property value, refinance, buy, and then sell and take the delta and buy again. And I did that a few times, and that worked. But again, it's a little tougher to do it now because the basis on properties is so, so high now. You know, a triplex now is probably a million dollars, for all I know. I haven't bought one in many years, you know, $800,000. So it's not the same game. But at the time, we had the ability to look into that and, and, and get it done. And at least I didn't spend my money buying sneakers and, and cars. I, <laughs> I did everything but. <laughs> the question from the audience was, what would your strategic advice be? For me, if, if I had to start over today... And honestly, if I started over today, I would do the same business again. Niche. My niche is very, unfortunately, it's good and bad, right? Because when I'm in this niche, is very limited. It doesn't allow me to go do hotels. I mean, it allows me, but I don't do it. Hotels or industrial or anything else. I, don't, I have never done any of that. No industrial, no office. I've stayed here. But the beauty of doing that is that I know everything. Like down here, I could tell you every building and every owner and every situation. Even the gossip and problems that they're having behind the scenes that you don't know. What that allows me to have is a pulse. Direct post on what's going on with everybody that's here. And when something happens, I can act in 30 seconds. You see? So what you need is to focus on something that you could be good at and that you can scale. You see, whatever it is, if you're doing duplexes and you're good at that in Inglewood, then do that. And learn Inglewood the best you can. If you're doing, I don't know, high-end homes in the Hollywood Hills, make sure you know every owner in the Burr Streets and, and be able to buy every house that, that, that they're going to sell. I've never done a deal, for example, in Hollywood here. I never looked at anything in Santa Monica. Never looked at anything in Orange County. I never cared because I wanted to focus where I was. So I would say being keen to your craft and, and staying there until you have a grip and a, and a stable platform, that would be the best way to do it. And being efficient, look, there's inefficiencies everywhere. Inefficiencies in capital, inefficiencies in operations. You know, when you're nimble and small, it's easier to be efficient because you don't want to make the mistakes that the big guys have. You don't have the money to lose making mistakes that they have. So uh, the efficiency you, you fix by being uh, nimble and being careful about the money you put out. Because every time you put a dime out and you lose it, you feel it. Whereas a Brookfield or, or Blackstone, if they lose $1,000 or a million dollars to them, it's okay, I'll make it up in fees next month. I don't have that ability. So you become nimble and more focused because you know that every dime you put out, if you do not do the right thing, you lose it, you don't see it again. So the efficiencies come from fear almost. Fear and self-control. Cool. Folks, let's thank Ricardo. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.